Welcome to The Brandy Show, Conversations With. The idea for this type of show came from the very concept of podcasts. They're available to anyone at any time since they stay posted on the internet portal indefinitely. Podcasts that are time-sensitive, that deal with issues of the day, are fine. But after a month or so, they can be out of date. Taking advantage of the technology, it made sense to me to create a program podcast that would last. It's as current the day it is posted to six months or a year from now. So I hope you like our series conversations with. Thanks for stopping by. Today, our conversation is with Jack Harbaugh. If you're a football fan, I'm sure you've heard the name Harbaugh. Well, Jack Harbaugh is the father of University of Michigan head football coach Jim and Baltimore Ravens head football coach John of the NFL. What you may not know is that Jack was a head football coach in his own right and a darn good one. He was also an assistant on the staff of Bo Schembechler and is a football lifer, as I like to call him, and I consider that a compliment. He's a treasure trove of history regarding college football and is one of the most engaging guys you'll ever meet. A great storyteller, a guy you can't help but like, who laughs easily and makes you feel like you're a friend the moment you meet him. Enjoy my conversation with Jack Harbaugh. I think I've heard you are the originator of the saying, attack each day with an enthusiasm, enthusiasm unknown to mankind. mankind. Is that accurate? It is, I think. Oh. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to go on record. There may be someone out there that coined it before, but to my recollection. Well, when Jim uses it and he gets all the credit, you used it, I'm understanding, from at the dinner table sometimes, right? It started back in Iowa. I was the assistant coach back there, and John and Jim were like 10 and 11 years old. I'd take them to school in the morning. It's cold in the winter. They had their, remember the leggings? Oh, sure. And the hats and the oh. scarves around their neck, and they look like... <laughs> Yeah. You ever see that movie, the Christmas movie, where that little Peter Billingsley's wrapped up going? He looks just like them, Jim and John going to school. together, and they're in the back seat. And I'm driving down the roads and sliding around, getting them to school. And I'm looking back. I've never seen two more disappointed, unenergetic people in my entire life. <laughs> faces down over there. Finally, about the third day, I said, I got to do something. As a dad, I got to do something to rile them up. So we stopped the car, and I looked around. I said, gentlemen, attack this day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. And don't take any wooden nickels. You said that? That was the second part of it. My dad used to say, don't take any wooden nickels to me, too. I thought nobody else knew oh, that, that phrase. Was, that was what, and then, so they would get out of the car, and they would just, with no enthusiasm, as in whatsoever, <laughs> march off to school, right? 30 days I did it, 30 consecutive days, and I want to report to you, Jim, not one iota of change in their entire attitude in 30 days. So I figure this is not going anywhere. So I'm around the dinner table, but then Jim gets the job at Stanford in like 206 or 207. They had won one game and lost 11, and he took the job. And so he had a press conference, and I'm listening to the press conference, watching it, or Jim Harbaugh's first press conference, and the first question asked, I cross my heart when I tell you this story, first question asked was, Jim, 1-11, what's the first day on the job going to be like? He said, I'm going to attack this day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. I thought to myself, he was listening, they were listening. 
<laughs> to make you feel good in your heart. I, I mean, no matter what happened at Stanford, I mean, I I, I felt validated. Is there a word like that? Validated. Yeah, no, I it, felt that's validated. A, that's the perfect word. Well, you became a coach, obviously, when your kids were little. But tell me where you got your start. You were in high school coaching, right? Because I know John Falk told the story. He's the freshman manager, and. He forgot the footballs for his freshman JV team from Ohio, my Oxford, and he had to go across the field to the other coach. And he had to say to that coach, the opposing coach, Coach, I forgot the footballs. Can you help me out? And that coach, John Falk, said, gave him one football. Just one to use for his entire team's warm-up. And he said to me, you know who that coach was? I said, no, John, who? He said, Jack Harbaugh. <laughs> Is that a true story? It's a true And he, co- he copped a little bit of an attitude. I gave him the one. He said, what? I'm only getting one football? I said, well, let me just tell you something. I only have two in our entire program. I'm giving you half of my stock. <laughs> Where was that? I was at Eaton, Ohio. And was that a freshman team or a it was JV a varsity team? team? Varsity team. It was a scrimmage. It okay. was one of those early scrimmages. You know, you had two or three scrimmages before the season started in August. And he was a Talawanda High School, you know, down in Oxford, where Miami, Ohio was. And so they came for the for the scrimmage. And uh, in fact, it was the first football game that I ever coached at Eaton High School. I was the head coach. And, and who would have known at that time? Isn't it amazing? Football brings people together that you somehow run into 25, 30, 40 years down the road. Jim, it's like a giant bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> and as you get older, the bowl just gets bigger and bigger. You look in there, everything's twisting around and touching. But it all has football as the sauce. As, as, the, as the, I, you know, love it. From <laughs> now on, I'm going to add that to the story. Uh, so Eden High School, that was your first job. Did You were also, back then, coaches had to teach, too. Like my football coach when I was in high school was our algebra teacher. Right. What did you teach? I wasn't teaching algebra. <laughs> <laughs> You a shop class guy? Well, not a, no, no. You look at here. My fingers are all here. I taught uh, physical education, little science. I got to tell you this story. My first job as a junior high school coach in Canton, Ohio. Okay. Canton McKinley. I right. was a junior high football, basketball, and track. You're in Deerdorf's uh, territory. I was right down the street from, from Dan Deerdorf. Then I went to Perrysburg, up the road from Bowling Green. That's where John right along I seventy five. John and Jim were born there, and I was a general science teacher and the assistant football coach. Well, in that we had a guy in there named Ted Gravatt in the seventh grade, and I'm teaching science, and I'm one of those guys that I'm reading the chapter, you know, before the next day when I have to give the class. And <laughs> it's your lesson plan. That's my lesson plan. I'd, <laughs> I'd read them fast, and then I would go in, and we're talking about airplanes, you know, airplanes flying, and so I'm up there, and this kid was the brightest kid I've ever seen in my life. Ted Gravatt, I remember him to this day. And so I'm t- talking about airplane. I said, they have an instrument on the airplane that will tell you how high the airplane is off the ground. It's called an altimeter. Uh, Coach Harbaugh, I think they call that an altimeter. <laughs> <laughs> so kids so, are teaching you. So the, so, But I've done this before, so my reaction is, Ted, you know what? I'm so proud of you. I did that on purpose to see if there was anyone in the class... <laughs> That was going to be able to catch that. So that was Perrysburg. Then on to Eaton, Ohio. It was my first head coaching job in high school. It bit you. This coaching thing had to bite you hard because it turned into a career. When did you know you wanted to make this a career? It's a, it's a great story. And Jim and John and I have all talked to about it. The Ralph story, 
when I was in the seventh grade, went out for football, tackle football the first time, put the pads on and the helmet, you know, and you look in the mirror and you look at Jack Harbaugh, football player. Then it was time to go play. The week you worked on practice, you know, tackling practice, you know, fronting them up, power producing angles in the ankles and the knees, head up, roll your hips, wrap your arms and all. Then it oh, came. Oh God, I'm getting that's that's fun. <laughs> now I'm getting to feel like I should be in a in the office with you working the board. And then came the first day for the live tackle, about a week down the road, in line. You've seen the line. I've seen it. Four over here, four over here. I'm fourth in the line, counting the running. I'm the tackler, counting who's going to be running the ball. And it's a guy named Ralph. He weighs about 170 pounds, and I weigh about 92. <laughs> and Ralph's one of those guys in the seventh grade, you know, a little needed a little shave and had one eyebrow across there. And you, you know, we've seen all those, haven't we? Yeah, he looked 30, and he was only yeah. 12. And he looked mean because he was, he was kind of huffing, and the bubbles were kind of out of his <laughs> nose. And so I'm power-producing angles, locked in, you know, head up, hit. Rolled my hips into him, and he drove me in with a forearm up underneath my chin that knocked me off the ground by a foot. Down the field I go. I'm carrying him. I'm holding on, and he goes down about 20 yards down the field. I'm holding on. I'm thinking, I just made my first tackle. And there's a, more to the story, but the point is, really, on that day, I realized what I wanted to do the rest of my life, what I had a love and passion for, and that was football. Wanted to play as long as I could, and then hopefully be able to coach. And uh, so I, I found that that day, and I realized with that experience, the football experience, I was not going to through li go through life scared. You know, football taught you to face challenges and physical challenges and mental challenges and not back away and not be scared, but you know, to continue to move forward. Uh, just as an aside, you sound a lot like Jim in the sense that I don't think he feels he should not be playing anymore. I mean, I see him go out in warm-ups, and he warms up the wide receivers. He gets out there and throws. He's, he's a lot like you. It's like, if I can't play it, then I'll coach it. But, boy, I'm not done playing yet. Do you think that about Jim, too? Oh, I watch him. It's, it, I, I, he got the gloves on. You know, he's got the cleated football oh, shoes. <laughs> I got to tell you a story. So we're traveling, and I'm on the plane, right? And uh, we get to the city, and the players are all waiting in the hotel to get their cards to go up to their rooms. And Jim is sitting over there in the window kind of waiting as all the team goes by. And I'm waiting there till the end because I'm last in line. And I look at Jim, and I said, Jim just got off the plane. He's got his cleats on. <laughs> He's, he's come from the plane to the bus to the hotel, and he's got his football shoes on. I said, now that guy is committed. Can you imagine in one of those hotels, you know, you're walking through the lobby, click, 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 as you walk through there. Pretty amazing. So, so that was going to be your career. So how did you get it started? How did you say, okay, this is going to be a career for me? Where did you go? Well, from Crestline, a little town of Crestline, Ohio, Gates Brown. I'm sure you're familiar oh, with Gates. Oh, great tiger. He and I were classmates. We were in the same class. One of the great uh, pinch hitters in all of baseball back in the 60s. 68. Yeah. He was on the World Series team. And then he was the hitting instructor in 84 when they won the uh, won the World Championship. But he was a football, basketball, and baseball player along with myself. And a uh, little town of 5,000. I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Bowling Green State University. Doit Perry was our head coach. And Doit Perry and Bo Schembechler were the best of friends. They were best of friends their entire life. The first coach that Doyd hired at Bowling Green State University in 1955 
was Bo Schembechler. He was his offensive line coach. And then Bo went out and recruited Bill Gunlock to be the defensive line coach. Both guys are, you know, I mean, they Bill were, Gunlock was with Bo right to the day he died. They were teammates at Miami of Ohio. Yeah. They were in the same class, I think, 1946. Uh-huh. And, and, and great, great friends. So that's where it all started for me. I wanted to have you go through this coaching tree. Not necessarily your coaching tree, guys that coached for you, but who motive, who kind of were your mentors as you were growing up? Because these are the great names of college football. People today don't hear about too much. Like the Doit Perry. I'm sure you mentioned his name and some people are listening to this going, who? These were great coaches. These were great teachers, weren't they? No, that coaching and teaching are synonymous. That was the term that both Doit and Bo would use. To be a good coach, you have to be a good teacher. You have to be able to plan. You have to be able to explain yourself. You have to have a passion and a love for it. And Woody Hayes said, and he was one of my, my heroes in Crestline at the time, he said he could walk into any class at, at Ohio State University and give him two weeks. And he could teach that class as well, if not better, than any professor they had in, in the university <laughs> because he had that kind of a, of a, of a teaching quality. And I believe he believed that unto his soul, because I think he did that a couple of times. Didn't he teach a class at Ohio State? He taught his own. It was a kind of a word class every Saturday. And the one that it's on tape where he taught like apathy. Apathy, treat it like the plague. <laughs> You're going to run into people with apathy and they're just going to stand there and look at their shoes. <laughs> <Not gonna get laughs> but it's, but that, that was when... But Doit Perry was the first guy that Woody Hayes hired as an assistant coach in 1951 when he came from Miami, Ohio, to Ohio State University. Did you play for Doit? I did. He was the head coach at Bowling Green. Okay. Did you coach for Doit Perry? I did not coach. I was there with Don Nealon in 1968 as an assistant when Doit Perry was the athletics director. So I had to be around him. Were you at Bowling Green in 1968 as an assistant coach? I was. Okay. Did you have anything to do with their freshman team? No, I was a secondary <laughs> coach. When I was a freshman, we played Bowling Green. I, at it, Bowling Green? Is, yeah. Is it? This is spaghetti again. It was at the old, the new. It was a brand new stadium. Brand new now, stadium. Dwight Perry Stadium. Yeah, Dwight Perry Stadium. We played down there. It was our freshman team back then. Freshmen couldn't play at Michigan, yeah. so we had two games: one with Toledo, and one with Bowling Green as freshman team. And we went down to Bowling Green on the bus. And we played, and I was thinking, here's spaghetti again. You were on that staff, probably not the freshman coach team, but the freshman team, we played them as our freshman team that was recruited by Bump Elliott. And those guys, uh, you know, most of those guys, I had something to do with recruiting them, and Tom Rakowski was the head freshman coach, if I remember. Don Needling was the head coach, uh-huh. and, uh, and I was coaching defensive back. So... Again, talking about the spaghetti. What did you learn from guys like Doit Perry and Don Nealon? Uh, again, going to this coaching tree thing about football and about how you need to be where you need to go to be successful at this profession. First, it was Doit. That was in 1957 when I went there as a freshman. Our freshmen weren't eligible as well. We had to play freshman football. We played six games. And then through my sophomore, junior, and senior, in in, six, in 59, we won the small college national championship. We beat Delaware University for, the, for that. And, uh, and Doy was the first guy. I mean, I look back now, and he and, and Bo were so much alike. 
I mean, their personalities. Doy would say something to you like this. Jim Branstetter, <laughs> you may be the greatest offensive line coach that I've... Uh, uh, you'll be dead. Jim Branstetter, you may be the best offensive lineman that I've ever coached. Or you may be the absolute worst. <laughs> and you'd walk away and you'd be thinking, but you know what he was saying? It's in your hands. Yeah. Do you want to be the best or do you want to be the worst? <laughs> See, the beauty about Bo was he never told me I'd ever be the best. <laughs> he was telling you the <laughs> He always said to me, you're the worst tackle in the history of intercollegiate football. Never said anything about being the best. So that was the He only got half a Deutsch learning trip. Yeah, he didn't get that. When did you first, again, you're moving on in your career, uh, come in contact with Bo as a boss? Uh, I didn't know Bo very well. But when we, in 1968, Bo came here in 68, 69. When he came in 69, I was at Bowling Green, so... Our staff came here during the spring to watch spring practice. And, of course, Jerry Hamlis stayed up to about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night talking about offensive line play. Larry Smith was a teammate of mine at Bowling Green. Yeah, Smith, he was, was great. Went on to coach at SC in Tulane. And Jim Young was a graduate assistant at Bowling Green. Was he? In, in 59 when we won the national championship. Well, they were all on both staff at Miami. But here's what I was telling someone the other day. Bo and Doit had such a fantastic... Anyone that Doit ever recommended to the University of Michigan, I think Bo hired. He had that kind of respect for him. Because I was at Iowa before I came here. I mean, I think we, I think we won five games in two years. I mean, you wouldn't certainly look at that team and say, Jack Harbaugh is somebody that I want to bring in from Iowa. But I'm sure Doit is the guy that orchestrated that. Who's your head coach at Iowa? Uh, Frank Lauterbur. Frank Lauterbur. Bump Elliott was the athletics director. Yeah. Because we played at Iowa when Frank Lauterbrew was their coach in my first or second year here. Um, when you came to Michigan, from Lauterbrew to Schembechler, what was that dynamic like? you got to remember, in that year that I came, I left Iowa and came here, our opening game was against the University of Michigan. The first game that I ever coached here on both staff was Iowa. And all I could think about all year long is Michigan always beat Iowa and beat them badly for a lot of years. And the only difference was Jack Harbaugh. And if we lost, Michigan <laughs> lost that game, it may be the last game that I ever coached at Michigan. Well, did Bo ever fire you? Because he fired Hanlon. Close. About, I was he, close. Well, he fired Hanlon, what, 152 times? I was close. Yeah. But the at first game, I'm in the locker room, and I got sweat coming off my forehead. My palms are sweating, and I'm in the locker room, and Bob Thornblade is playing at the time. He's a fullback. Yep. So he's putting on his uniform. You know, he's looking over. He said, "What the hell is wrong with you?" I said, "Bob, you don't understand. If we don't win this game, this could be the last game that I ever." Go. He's a player. <laughs> and Bob Thornblade looked at me, Jim, and here's what he said: "Jack, this is like an hour before the kickoff." And he's a player. He's, he's a like player. twenty years old. <laughs> he's twenty years old, but he's but he's Bob Thornblade. Yeah, right. We all know Bob. Yeah. He looks at me. He's Jack. They were Iowa. We're Michigan. <laughs> We are not going to lose, no matter who's here. We're not losing to Iowa. That was the, the attitude that he. That I finally learned. You know what? There, there's something to that. So on your in your years at Michigan under Bo, you know, there's got to be million story staff meetings, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, tell me about when you were the film coach, you know, it, because these are these are things that people don't realize at home. Back in the day. 
uh, you had 16 millimeter film, and you were you were driving places in the middle of the night to pick up film. There's, there's no huddle. I mean, you had to have the film in order to see the game, and they would they would send two of their previous games on Tuesday. But that wasn't much of a problem. You'd go pick them up and you'd store them here and guys would look at them, pre-look at them. But at 7 o'clock on Sunday, the film coach had to have three games in a row sitting in front of Bull in that old meeting down there on Hoover and State. That was, if that, they weren't there, I mean, that would, Harbaugh, I don't know why I brought you in here. You can't get me three game films. That was what I was going to hear. So that was, was part of my job. So, uh how I got the job was Elliot Uzelak and I got the job at the same time. We were hired, we brought in, came in the same day and we're playing racquetball with, with Bo and we're down in that old building after we played and he goes, you know, there's a film coach job open. I, you know, I don't think I want that, Elliot. I don't want that job either. So one of you are going, one of the two of you are going to have it. I said, well, how are we going to do this? You're going to flip a coin. I said, well, that's fair. So flipped the, Bo flipped the coin, heads or tails. I said, heads. Heads, Jack, you got it. So I said, oh, okay. wait a minute. I won the toss. <laughs> How am I going to get, why, why do I have the job if I, I won the toss? I should have the right to say that Elliot has it, right? Damn it, Harbaugh, do you want to coach here or not? <laughs> so I got the film job. So then what it was, the, the biggest problem I had was Illinois. They would send their film on Sunday morning. It had to go through Chicago and then to Detroit. So only one flight that you could get that could do that, and the flight got in here about 2 or 3 o'clock, so I knew I would have plenty of time. So I send a guy out to the at Metro Airport. Coach, no film. It's not on the plane. So it's got to be on the plane. It's the only flight it's that comes job. through. I, I didn't have time to put somebody in a car and drive them to uh, Peoria or someplace to make the exchange. So I figured the only chance I have, i got to get a hold of the Chicago airport and see if they can find it. So I'm calling, make about three calls. Finally, I'm in the loading dock of the Chicago airport. I'm talking to a guy named Joe. Joe! Jack Harbaugh. You don't know me. I'm the secondary coach at the University of Michigan. I'm the film coach. Do you ever heard of Bo Schembechler? He said, yeah, yeah. He's kind of get wild on the sideline, doesn't he? I said, well, he's got a little bit of a temper. And let me tell you something. I have three children, John, Jim, and Joni, here young, you're in sixth, seventh grade, and my job as a film coach, I have to have three games in front of him at 7 o'clock or I'm gone. I'm fired. I'm going to have to go home and tell my wife, Jackie, and three kids that I'm no longer. You're with. running this on this guy. Right? <laughs> I'm giving him the whole shot. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm going to get fired. Joe, could, could you just kind of look around there and see if you could find a can of four cans of film that could be sent to Ann Arbor? So he comes back. He goes, Coach Harbaugh, this is Joe. I got good news for you. Give your wife Jackie a call and tell her you're still hired at the <laughs> University of Michigan. That's a great story. Oh, what about when, when you were – were you here on the staff when Purdue came in with Mark Herman? I was. And, and you guys went – McCartney was the defensive coordinator, right. right? And he went with six defensive backs in that no, game. No, that, that I'd left. Oh, you'd left? But we played against him when we we were – we got him. Uh, and it was Bill McCartney who put the defense together. What we did – you know, they ran an eye, and they liked to do what we do, the play action, two backs go one way, and the fake, and then off. And he was good, tall, lanky guy, real good. So what Bill decided to do, whatever side they read, the two backs go, he uh, blitzed the linebacker through the B-gap. 
and put pressure on him. And he didn't move around real well. And we had a very, very good a game against him. But that was the year after I left and went to Stanford. Okay. Uh, Gerald Diggs, I think, was the nickelback, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but I think McCartney supposedly told Bo, I want to use six DBs. And Bo said, no, if they run the ball on me, I'm going to kill you. And you're fired. And and McCartney, like, shaking in his boots, said, I think this will work. And ultimately it did. And I was wondering if you were there as a no, defensive No, I was not there coach. for there. You remember the story? I do. John Falk tells the story I yeah. mean, the same the same way. And, I mean, you talk about being in a poker game and going all in. Bill McCartney was in a poker game, and you got to give him tremendous credit. He went all in. So you go on now from an assistant coach to a head coach. How much of Bow and Doyton, all those guys you ran into, did you take with you? I, I really took too much of Bow, and I I went to Western Michigan as a head coach, and I was so excited about it, and I thought I was so prepared for it, but I was like, everything I did, I would say, well, how would Bow handle that? And would Bo do this? And sometimes I, I was out of who I was, and uh, and I got fired. I was there, and after my fifth year, the athletic director said, Jack, we're moving in a different direction. And I said, well, which way are we gone? And he explained to me. <laughs> yeah, I got that same phone call a year ago. <laughs> we're moving this way, and you're moving this That's way. Right. But uh, so the second crack, you don't get the crack at a second head coaching job very often, but I was really blessed to get a job, a head coaching job at Western Kentucky. And then I went in and I, and I made up my mind. I, I don't know how this is going to work, but, but I was going to, to be more me and not so much Bo. And I think in coaching sometimes when we love someone and we respect someone, I mean, we inflect the way they inflect. I mean, we think the way they think. They, we go off when we think we, he would have gone off. And, and, I, and I think I learned a valuable lesson. From... from... At that point, you're at Western Kentucky. Don't John and Jim come down and kind of help you coach a little bit? Did you see where they were going at that point? Uh, Jim was playing. He was with the Chicago Bears at the time. Right, but he came down and helped you coach. In, two, in 1992, the president called us in in the spring and, and said we're, he's dropping football. To pack the uniforms away and go tell the players there'll be no spring practice, that the football is over at, at Western Kentucky University. So uh, we went back to our team and told them that this is what the, the president has decided. But we were going to start practice on Tuesday. It was scheduled to go. What I suggest is we go and try to get a vote changed on our, our, the Board of Regents. He was going to recommend football drop. He had the 5-4 votes at the time. If we could get one vote changed in one month, you know, we would have a chance to play football, our entire team. That's what we used to those who stay will be champions. We put that sign up. That sign was up. Every single guy went out for spring practice, realizing that we wouldn't play. Teams, were, it was advertised that football was over, so our schedule was depleted. Teams wouldn't play us. We can't have you on our schedule if you're not going to play. So they went out and found other games. So we only had about six or seven games for the next year. And that's when Jim stepped in and John stepped in. Jim came down and he said, uh, you only have four coaches, you're allowed six. I'll become a full-time coach here for no money, and I'll be a recruiter. I can't be here in the fall, but I'll recruit for you in, in uh, January. So we got him. He took the, the test, and he got him on the road, and uh, he recruited for us. And John was recruiting at Cincinnati at the time, so players that he looked at that he thought could play for us, then he gave the names to Jim, and I'm, I'm kind of out of the loop. 
these two guys are names. And Willie Taggart, who's now the head football coach at Florida State University, was the first player that Jim called to come to Western Kentucky, which he did. Again, there's the spaghetti. All-American. All yeah, right. There's the spaghetti. Guy's a head coach at Florida State. Jim would call him when he was a college kid, right? First number on his list, and that's that's the one he called. And now he, Willie's like a family member for us. I mean, he literally, along with Jim and John, saved the program. When did you know that these guys could be your two sons, John and Jim, John goes on, coaches Baltimore Ravens, the head coach, to a Super Bowl. Jim goes to San Diego, I think, first, right? He was with the uh, Raiders. Raiders, that's right. He was Al an assistant Davis. coach, right? He was kind of a, what do they call him? Uh, have a name, analyst, they call him, oh, yeah. I think, or something. Or, yeah. But he did that. When did, you, when did you know, that, hey, they had what it takes to get to that level? It's an interesting question. It was asked a lot during the Super Bowl week. Yeah, it's and, not the first time you've been asked that. And the answer really is it, it was it's a day-to-day process with kids. I mean, you hope when they go out for junior high school football player that they that the stage isn't too big for them, that they'll they'll find they like it and they'll compete and enjoy it. And then they go out for high school. Golly, you know, they, well, high, the junior high went well, but golly, can can they handle it here? And then Jim came here, and he was here for two years, and didn't do much, didn't play much, and you just wonder, oh, my goodness. I did. You think that there's a day that he'll be able to step on the field at the University of Michigan. John went to Miami, Ohio, and played, had some knee problems. It played to four years, but knee problems really really curtail, uh, curtailed his playing time a little bit. But anyway, then they go coaching. You just hope <laughs> that, they, that they make it through you know, that experience. But it really is day-to-day, and even today, you just – you just hope that you know tomorrow is, is is going to be good for for everyone in the family. As a dad, and I know your family well enough to know that you're a bit of a sounding board. First of all, you're great. You're a great sounding board. Who wouldn't want an advisor like you, who who's been through there? And your your kids are both coaching, but it must be different. John's kind of advice that he's getting coaching in the NFL, and Jim's kind of problems that he's coming to you with. Or looking advice from from the college level, can you kind of address that a little bit? The the game, the the, the X's and O's of the game, really had passed me by, and I and I say that humbly. It really has. I mean, we do these groupings and we do all these different things and RPOs, and I, I'm still trying to figure out what RPO <laughs> means. The old run pass option. That I didn't. About three years ago, I had no idea what. <laughs> but anyway, the point I make is. I don't really X's and O's. You know, I I really don't quite understand that. But when they call you, sometimes a John will call and he'll, Dad, this came up, and I'm I'm so excited just to get the phone call as a dad. Yeah. That we talk and and if I can help him, I try. But more, it's him involving me in his work. And his job, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. I got to tell you the story about Jim, though. We all know Jim. Oh yes, we all know Jim. So about three years ago, uh, he, he he's been here a year, right? We get a call. I'm, we're living in Milwaukee, Jackie and I. We're living in Milwaukee. We get a call from Jim. He goes, "Dad, I'm just here thinking. There's things coming from everywhere, and you got your experience in in football and all that." He says, "I need you. I need you to be here with me." He said, uh, is there a possibility that we can talk you and mom into moving into Ann Arbor and, and being here so I can sit across the desk from you and we can share ideas? And that's the way on the phone, right? 
And I go, Jim, who are you trying to BS? <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I said, you got a six-year-old, you got a four-year-old, and you got a two-year-old. I might be off on the ages, but they were like two years apart. You're looking for two babysitters, aren't you? And what did he say? Dad, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'm looking for, two babysitters. But but you do come to Shenbeckler Hall, and you do... You know, sit and just you're a sounding board for Jim. And I would think that that's a positive thing. And I would think you feel I'm kind of productive here. I'm still coaching a little bit, even though I'm coaching the head coach. I, I say this, and again, it's from the really from the bottom of my heart. I, I left coaching when I was about 63, 64 years old. Might have left a little too early. And the only thing that's allowed me to have the kind of energy that I, that I, I want to have is that John and Jim and Tom Crean, basketball coach down at Georgia. Married to your daughter. He's a basketball coach and coached in the Big Ten, was at Indiana for a while. Final four, won two outright championships in Indiana, and, and he allows me to come down. I, what I know about basketball couldn't blow up a very, very small balloon, but he'll let me talk to the team, and he'll let me sit in on the film meetings and things. That I don't know what my life would be, professional life, and being football life would be had – those three not allowed me to be around the game. And how tough is it? And this is the question I think that they're in the public eye. And what happens in the public eye, they sometimes get criticized publicly. From a mom and a dad standpoint, you and Jackie, it's like you've been there. And, and does it bother you or do you just say this is part of the job and they know it? That's kind of the way we go. We don't, we don't read any of that stuff. We don't read anything. We don't read headlines. We don't read anything. Uh, and so it really, you know, we don't, but you know, they're going through it. You can see some days, you know, after a tough loss or something, you can just, you don't have, they don't have to say a word. They, you just look in their eyes and you see the pain that we all felt when we fa faced those kind of disappointments. Being a competitor, being that guy, that coach, there's nobody that understands that look better than a coach or a player, is there? The pain. I, I remember coaching, John and Jim were like, 11, 12 years old. Here at Michigan, we had some disappointments. And then on in my career, we've had disappointments. The game is over. You know, you leave the locker room and you go home. And you just gotten beaten by someone that you didn't want to get beaten by, right? You walk in the back door. I remember walking through the kitchen, around the corner, into the bedroom. <laughs> Close the door and turn out the lights. And just want to be by yourself. You don't want to be with your kids you don't want to be with any coaches you don't want any friends coming over but the joy of that now is that they saw all that you know they saw those disappointments and still chose to get into the coaching profession so that brings great joy to me to know that that uh, I didn't uh, deflect them away from coaching you talked about coaching and you talked about going down and Tom Crean your son-in-law is a basketball coach I've talked to the team you are an unbelievable after-dinner speaker, a motivator. I was with you recently in Ann Arbor uh, for a police and fire banquet. I was the MC and brought you up there, and you were fabulous. You told a story about a young man playing football whose father had recently passed. Tell that story. Billy's story. The Billy story. That's Bob Eufer's story. Bob Eufer used to speak to our team during recruiting season. You'd have 
like six, seven weekends, recruiting weekends, where he had a dinner and, and Bob would give the same talk six, seven times every year for seven years. I heard this talk and it, it had such a profound effect on me. And when I tell the story, I tell that in, in, in memory of my dear, dear friend, Bob Buford, is, and there's a record, there's a country western song about uh, a dad in the stands or a father in the stands that tells this story. So it must have some, some roots to it. But Bob Buford would tell the story. There's a player in Michigan by the name of Billy. Senior year, had never played a down of football, uh, wasn't good enough to play on the team. They're playing for the state championship on Friday night. Uh, walks into the coach's office on Wednesday and tells him that he may not be at the game because his father had passed. And the coach says, I understand, and uh, condolences to your family, and uh, tell your mom there's anything, you know, the whole thing. So he leaves, and Friday night, about an hour and a half before the game, there was a knock on the coach's door. He opened the door, it was Billy. He said, we've, you know, we've done everything we can do, and my mom and I think it's important that we be with our team for the state championship. Billy, go get dressed. No coaches. I, I need to ask a favor. I need to play in one play tonight. Give me one play. Coach says, Billy, you've been here since you were a freshman. You've never played a down. How fair would that be to your teammates playing for the state championship? Coach, one play. He said, if we lose the toss and kick off, I'll allow you to run down under the opening kickoff. And as would have it, they lost the toss. They kick off. Billy's on the field, the ball's rolling down the field. Guy gets it on about the five-yard line. Here he comes, 15, 20, 22-yard line. Boom! Explosion. Ball goes one way, helmet goes one way. I might be exaggeration with a shoe, <laughs> but things were flying around. And the coach says, who was that? Coach said, that was Billy. So Billy walked by the coach and said, thanks, coach. Thank you. He said, no, no, Billy, you're in. You're going to be our middle linebacker tonight. So he plays, and they're ahead by about three points, end of the game. Billy had 23 unassisted tackles, six assists, had recovered a fumble and caused one. But the last play of the game, the opposing quarterback rolled out to the right, the old cross-country pass, right, Jim? I remember that. Hit the tight end going the other way. Going the other way. Rolled out to the right, threw the cross-country pass, tight end catches it, completely fooled Billy's team down the sideline he goes, which would have been the winning touchdown. But again, on about the five-yard line, bang. Billy knocks him out of bounds. Gun goes off. Billy's team wins the state championship. They're in the locker room after the game. Players had all left. Steam coming out of the locker room, lock out of the shower. Tape on the floor, piles of pants and jerseys and all that. And Billy's still in full uniform and helmet, sitting on the bench. Team had all left. Coach sits down. He says, Billy, that's the greatest game I've ever seen any player ever play. Tell me, what did I miss for four years about the way you play. Coach, you didn't miss anything. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, my father died. I know. He, my father was blind. I know. He used to come out and sit in the stands and, and uh, when we were practicing. Coach, don't you understand? Coach says, no, you got to explain it to me. He said, Coach, tonight was the first night that my dad would ever see me play. And there was no way, no way I was going to disappoint him point him because he believed in me and I wanted him to see how I could play and uh, and uh, what it tells us that every in our lives all of us need someone that believes in us and we as adults and 
coaches and parents and teachers need to take every opportunity we have to tell those around us how much we believe in them. You have attacked this with an enthusiasm <laughs> unknown to mankind. I, 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 that is one of the great stories, and I'm so glad you told it the way Jack Harbaugh tells it because there aren't many people, I could name them on one hand, who who could sit there. And I could, We're in a quiet room. The room got quieter when you were talking. <laughs> That's just wonderful, Jack. Oh, thank you. So nice to be with you. I, gotta, I, I know we're running out of time. No, gotta, we're not running out of time. We've got all the time in the world. Here, here I, Back when I was at Iowa, there was a guy there did their broadcast by the name of Jim Zabo. Jim Zabo. I used to know. I knew Jim Zabo. He'd call me up every year. He loved Iowa like oh, Bob Eufer. That's my point. Yeah, loved Michigan. But here's what he did at Iowa. You may know this, but every night at 10 o'clock after the game, they would do a rebroadcast of the game. And my point is, why don't we do that here? Why can't you and Dan or somebody like, what is it, our 1050 here, at 10 o'clock at night, put the rebroadcast on. It, it'll take two or three hours, but I guarantee there's 111,000 people in the stadium that day that did not hear your broadcast and are missing out. Why can't we do that? That's a great idea. I'll have to ask the question. The only thing I can think of is that sometimes you run into these legal issues. <laughs> That's my. <laughs> where you have rights fees yeah. and uh, whether anybody's going to want to give up three and a half hours of programming uh, at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock at night. I don't know. But it's a good question. IMG is the owner, quote unquote, of the broadcast. And uh, that would be a question for IMG, but I'll ask it. But I know when we were at Iowa, and sometimes it weren't very enjoyable watching because we didn't win, but I, I really enjoyed listening. And I can't tell you how much I would enjoy the days that we're in that stadium and, and can hear your broadcast. I mean, we get the highlights and all that, but I'm, I'm in the banner between, because you two are the very, very best, to get the banner of two guys that love the University of Michigan, love Michigan football, and we all share in a, that love for for all those that we were around. And the unique thing and the fun thing is Dan and I were teammates. Yeah. You know, we went through all of this back in the late 60s, early 70s. So we're like, you know, two guys that uh, just sitting in the stands talking to each other and somebody's e eavesdropping. And that's kind of the way the broadcast goes. Golly, let's get that started. Can we start I, you that? You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to investigate that. Invest I like With an enthusiasm. Yeah, unknown to man. <laughs> Jack, thank you so much. You're a delight. And uh, can't tell anybody out there, if you ever want to hear Jack Harbaugh speak, go. It's a treat. You also guys are involved, you and Jim, in a, in a podcast, aren't you? We are. Uh, we What's do, the name of it? It's the Intact Each Day uh, Harbaugh podcast. It uh, comes out on Tuesday of every week. We've been doing it about a year and a half now. And where can people get it? Uh Wherever you get those podcasts. <laughs> uh, Google Play, Apple, iTunes, things like that. Something, something like that. It's all over the place. And I think you can also get it on mgoblue.com, right? I'm not sure. I, uh, I'm i not sure. Well, if, if anything, if it's anything like today, if, if you are what you were today, that's a can't-miss podcast. Jack. We're having so much fun with it. You know the guy that's enjoying it more than anybody? Who? Jim. Is he? I, I see a different Jim on the podcast isn't that fun? Because there are those in the media who say he's a little difficult to deal with. And yet there he is in the podcast and you say he's having the greatest it's time. It's like we're sitting around the kitchen table. They give us a script with about 15 things on it, 1 to 15. 
we start on one, we cross that out, and then all bets are off. I mean, <laughs> so the script doesn't really absolutely nothing doesn't really work. No. Okay. Thanks, Jack. You're Thank the you best. so much. If you ever have the opportunity to hear Jack Harbaugh speak at a banquet or anywhere else, I highly recommend you take the time to do it. He's intense and will have you asking for more when he's done. He truly attacks everything he does with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. It's no surprise that sons Jim and John are as successful as they are in a very difficult business given the example Jack set for them at home. I had a great time with Jack Harbaugh and I hope you did too. Keep a lookout on my Facebook page, Jim Brandstatter 76, for my next Conversations With.